I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I'm willing to bet if you're listening right now, you know the name Jad Abumrad. Let's face it, he's one of the folks who pioneered podcasting and a new innovative approach to audio storytelling. I remember the first time I heard Radiolab. I was mesmerized by how they played with sound to convey a compelling story. I thought I had discovered something new and started telling all of my friends. Turns out they were already fans and I was late to the game. More recently, he co-created and hosted the WNYC podcast, Dolly Parton's America. Later this hour, Jad Abumrad joins us to talk podcasting and what's next for him. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. Good to be in the studio. Good to have you in the studio. Okay, so let's get right to it. After last week's episode about, about black churches, I understand we received an interesting Instagram message that connected that show to other segments we had, right? Yes. Rebecca Hendon DM'd us to say, quote, I recently listened to the episode on black churches in Middle Tennessee, and it led me to thinking about the legacy of black education in Nashville. We are blessed to still have Fisk, TSU, and American Baptist, but it is worth remembering the others that have graced our city. One in particular was Nashville Christian Institute, which was a black boarding school in Nashville. Civil rights lawyer Fred Gray and numerous other people who have influenced our world went there. Also, she writes, the last remaining building for NCI is in danger of being demolished due to development, and perhaps if more people knew about it, it could be saved. Hmm. Well, NCI may sound familiar to our listeners because we briefly mentioned the last remaining building that Rebecca wrote about in a previous segment on the Nashville Line. In late November, WPLN Special Projects editor Tony Gonzalez came on to talk about these priorities of the prop, sorry, these properties of the historic Nashville Incorporated. He says they're at risk of disappearing. The NCI building is actually an old gym in North Nashville that is now up for sale. Hmm. What else are our listeners talking about? One listener was inspired to share the story of his autism diagnosis with us while listening to Monday's show. D.T. Roth said, quote, I am now 68 years old and was treated for what became known as ADHD by taking Ritalin in the 60s. I did not realize I was autistic until I was in my mid 40s. Mm. You know, a lot more people have been coming up with that. They've been saying that. Mm -hmm. Mm, Interesting. What else? Well, we received a really curious comment from someone outside of Nashville during Mm. our episode about New Year's resolutions for the city. So during that show, our guest, Phil Michael Thomas, said that he was concerned um, about how a proposed increase to the hotel tax will impact locals who are staying in hotels and motels as short-term housing. In response to Phil's comment, Philip Ferreria from Portland, Maine, tweeted at us to say, quote, not sure how it works in Nashville, but unhoused people generally get vouchers paid for by the municipality or state. These vouchers are paid for by taxpayers, so the hotel tax increase shouldn't matter to the unhoused. Hope it works like that in Nashville, too. Well, I mean, does it? Is there something like this in Nashville? 
So I wanted to know, so I looked into it. And during the height of the pandemic, the city did use federal CARES funding for hotel vouchers for the unhoused. Local nonprofits like Room at the Inn and the Rescue Mission will sometimes have hotel vouchers too, but that's like you got to contact them directly. Mm -hmm. But I really think Phil's comment was more about people who are living in motels because they have low credit scores or they're low income. So it makes it difficult to find an apartment. Which makes affordable housing much more of a priority for our Mm -hmm. town. All right, what else we got? So during Tuesday's episode about streetcars, someone who goes by at nickel and dime tweeted at us saying, quote, not having rail service in and around Nashville is so sad and a huge missed opportunity. One day people will look back at our car dependent culture the way we now look back at open sewers and widespread smoking, an obviously unhealthy and ridiculous state of things. And you know what? 60 years from now, we should totally revisit that comment. Mm, Speaking of 60 years, WPLN is celebrating its anniversary. We'll have a special episode about it tomorrow. And of course, we're planning to include listener voices. So listeners, if you have a favorite story or just want to share how long you've been listening to the station, write us or leave us a voice message at thisisnashville.org. We really want to hear your WPLN stories. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna. We'll see you soon. Of course. And our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. And let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, founder and former host of Radiolab, Jad Abumrad, will join us. We'll learn how the Nashville native and son of a Vanderbilt surgeon went on to launch an epic radio career in New York City. Tweet us your questions for Jed at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The syndicated radio show and podcast Radio Lab from WNYC is one of the world's most beloved and downloaded shows. It's one that started as an idea some 20 years ago to tackle science and philosophy with human interest style stories. It leaned on curiosity and above all else, sound. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. You're listening to Radio Lab. You're on public radio WNYC. On New York Public Radio. Public Radio Keep listening. Okay. Okay, so the um, the other day, I, I, I should we say who we are? Yeah, I guess we should. Okay, Jad, Robert, Radio Lab. Okay, so the other day, Soren called us into the studio. There they are. Oh, <laughs> it's an iconic <laughs> intro, and of course, that voice you hear is Jad Abumrad. 
In 2011, he was the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. And in addition to creating and hosting Radiolab for 17 years, he also created the podcast More Perfect, co-produced the miniseries Dolly Parton's America and The Vanishing of Harry Pace. And he joins me now. Jad Abumrad, welcome to This Is Nashville. Hey, thanks, Khalil, for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Really appreciate you being with us, my friend. So let's start with the big question. How are you? <laughs> this is a big question these days, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. You know, neuroscience teaches us that we are not one unified self. We are just a bundle of contradictory uh, selves and thought patterns. And I feel I never have felt that more viscerally than now i i am many things one of which is like you know fine but the other is uh, fretting about the state of america the state of the world so I, i'm a lot of things but i think i can all sort of you know i can i can summarize it all by saying i'm doing okay happy to be here uh let's just let's just yeah. like anchor there i'm really happy to be here nashville is my hometown and uh, it's amazing to be talking to you yeah it's really great to have you and and what you just expressed i i feel very closely. Um, it's almost as if I said it, I answered the question for myself. So, you know, talk to us. Your, your breakthrough into the hearts and minds of podcast listeners was with Radiolab, which launched nearly 20 years ago. You know, but I want to go back a little bit further than that. How did you first get your start in radio? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, let's see. I mean, that's a, I, let me see if I can edit a, 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 a succinct version of that story uh, as, I, as I tell it. Um, you know, I... So I, I, you know, I, 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 I thought I'd be a musician. That was my, mm-hmm. my life plan. Um, uh, I, I was telling one of your producers earlier that my, my uh, formative years in Nashville were spent in a practice room at Blair School of Music, just playing scales. I, I was that kid, right? So okay. I, I, I went to school, uh, college, came out of college thinking I would uh, somehow be a film composer. Tried that for a little bit, ended up being terrible at it and failing. And then in one of those very sort of typical post-college flails, what am I going to do with my life? Oh, I'm going nowhere. I'm a failure. In one of those moments, uh, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Carla Murphy, uh, who her, herself is an amazing documentary maker, she had just gone to a conference where she saw um, this hack called Ira Glass, uh, give a talk. Okay. Uh, I say that lovingly because he's, he's a friend. <laughs> yes. uh, she'd seen him give a talk and he inspired her. And so she came back and she said, you know, maybe you should make some radio because it's kind of music, like what you like to do. I know you like to write. So it's kind of that. Uh, and it was just a, a weird uh, from left field idea at that point. And so I thought, well, okay, how do people, how do people get into making radio? Well, let me go volunteer at a community radio station. And I was living in New York City at the time, and WBI Radio uh, was this incredible um, progressive radio station in the belly of Wall Street. Hmm. And I ended up just uh, volunteering for that place and doing random news reporting when they'd let me, uh, working on a, a politics show. And I just fell in love with the with the with the whole thing of live radio, you know. One of, one of your pictures earlier was talking about just sort of the magic and the energy of live radio. And that's real, just like pulling all of these ideas and sounds together in the in this moment. I, I just completely got hooked. And so I, uh, I, just, I just stayed around as long as they let me. And then eventually 
ended up uh, getting a job, like a proper job at uh, WNYC, which is um, the public radio station in New York City, and happened to be in the hall when um, they had an idea to change their schedule and to create spaces for shows like Drumroll Please, Radio Lab. Mm. And uh, I just happened to be standing in the right place at the right time, and I got a really lucky break. And uh, the rest is history. Okay, so what was your pitch in the hall when you serendipitously walked into that meeting? How'd you pitch him? I mean, I I think the pitch was that this is, so it was 2002, so it was early 2002. And um, this is a little bit of a sort of wonky New York history, but basically, so 9-11, sort of September 11, 2001 had just happened. And the New York City station to that point had been all music. And suddenly this international event happens literally two blocks from the station. And, uh, you know, the the antenna went down and there was this big listener um, campaign to resurrect the station, which they did. But as a consequence, all of the all of the listeners now didn't want to hear music. They wanted to hear news. So the the station completely transformed their schedule. And they opened up all of these spaces and, and they, they said, we want to create spaces where people can hear documentaries from around the world. Uh, and I sort of raised my hand and I was like, well, I can do that. You know, like, mm-hmm. let me, let me create sort of a, a blank three hour space where um, some of the best radio reporting and documentary making from, from London, from uh, Zimbabwe, from the Netherlands, from Australia, all of these places that had really long and rich radio traditions. What if I take all that stuff and kind of almost uh, mash it up and play like 10 minutes of this and 10 minutes of that and lead people through a kind of a kaleidoscope of the kinds of stories that are being told elsewhere? Because that's what listeners wanted at that point. We didn't just want to hear pretty music or what's happening just in New York because mm-hmm. we had all been smacked in the face by the reality that New York was now the center of the world for a minute. Yeah. And and we didn't know why, and we wanted to know why. And so that was my basic pitch. I mean, it was a really easy pitch at that time. And uh, and then it just the show morphed slowly into something like what you described in your intro. Um, but that was a couple of years before we really hit on that. Did you know, as you were going through these two years of kind of morphing and shaping this weird show, did you know that it would grow into what it is today, something that's lasted for nearly 20 years? Oh, no. Oh, God, no. I mean, no. I mean, and I don't know that I ever had time to think about it mm-hmm. um, because I, I I got into, I mean, I was stuck into the host seat and it really wasn't just the host seat. It was the host, producer, engineer, researcher seat because I was doing everything. Okay. I was even in those early days, I would, I would, uh, I would make the show literally in the basement of the house that I'm in now. I would race on my bike across the Brooklyn Bridge, run up the 20 flights of stairs to get to the control room, stick the CD in right before it was supposed to broadcast. And then as it was broadcasting, I would come in and do the weather. So I was even doing the weather. Wow. Uh, to to the whole I was doing the whole thing. Um and at that time it was there was it was just so much to do. Um I had to fill 3 hours every week. And um I didn't really know what I was doing, Cleo. I mean, I didn't know uh I didn't know how to sound on the radio. Um, like you, you have a beautiful sonorous voice, right? And that, you know, it, maybe you were born with it or maybe that was something that you had to sort of work at to kind of figure out like who, who am I on the radio? 
because it's slightly different than who you are in real life, right? It's a, a little bit, a little bit, I will yeah, say. Thank it's you a slightly different thing. Yeah. You know, it, and uh, I had to learn who I was on the radio. I had to learn, how do you report something? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I hadn't, I hadn't gone to journalism school. Uh, what does it mean? How do you fact check? How the hell does that work, right? So I had to learn all of those things. Uh, and uh, and so it was, uh, I had to learn on the job, basically. And, yeah. and, and uh, which was the best and most terrifying way of learning. Okay. Well, we're all happy that you learned and you learned quickly. You know, Radiolab is famous for using sound design to illustrate complex scientific principles and break them down for the listener. There was an episode from 2015 on CRISPR, which is a method for genetic manipulation. We're going to listen to a clip from that episode. Here you're talking about how Japanese scientists were reading genetic code for E. coli. E. coli are bacteria inside humans, and like all living things, E. coli is made up of DNA, A's and T's and C's and G's. And what happened was that these scientists were reading a chunk of that genetic code when... They found this really strange stretch of DNA. Strange how? Well, so basically what it was um, was five identical sequences. In a row. And then they were separated by very short sequences in between them that were all different from each other. These little blurps would be like... And they looked at this and they're like, what? This is nothing like we've seen before. Repeated sequences in bacterial genomes are kind of unusual. You know, it just feels to me like you guys had a lot of fun doing the sound effects for that. Tell me, how did you find that... Using that kind of sound design effects, how does that affect the storytelling process? You know, I mean, I think it was, it, it, it's a little bit, it's, I mean, it's born of a problem that you're trying to solve, right? Like, um, for example, something like what we just heard in the CRISPR, like CRISPR is uh, typically how scientists sort of engage with the, with the information of CRISPR is by looking at um, genetic printouts of the sequence, which are just streams and streams of letters which don't mean anything to the normal person but um they're seeing some kind of pattern there and so the the question always is okay can we get can we as reporters and can we get our listeners to experience the information uh in a way that feels um exciting and visceral but also doesn't dumb it down, right? So it's like you're always trying to sort of like use the sound almost as like audio data visualizations. Mm. Um, and so uh, I feel like the sound, it exists in t- as two things at once in the world of Radiolab um, and all my work. It, it, it's hopefully helping you enter the story. It's, 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 it's creating little audio metaphors that actually de- mystify the information. And so like, it's teaching you something. And, and so it's very, very specifically didactic. At the same time, it's sort of artful, I hope. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd never call it art, but I hope that it sounds like aesthetically, like it's also sound for its own sake, but it's never one at the expense of the other, right? It's always like, we're not making sound art. We're really trying to communicate, but I also want it to be beautiful if I can. Mm. Um, and so it's, uh, the sound does two things at once for me. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, a lot of what, we, this is sort of the 
one of the sound design secrets of the show um, is that often we would use the words of our interviews to create the sounds. Um, you know, like, uh, for example, that was Carl Zimmer that you heard talking in an interview. Um, I can remember very specific moments where I would take Carl's voice and deconstruct the actual words into just sort of like tiny particles of sound that you could then multiply and manipulate to create um, bleeps and bloops and, and drones and various kinds of textures. And I loved those kinds of experiments, like actually literally creating music out of the voices mm. uh, as if as if the, the music emerged from inside the voices. Um, I don't know. I mean, that that's just like the music part of me that that's always just really turned on by that stuff. But at the end of the day, it really is about communicating something to people and uh, making sure it really comes across, uh, not as information, but as some kind of experience. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. My, my guest this hour is Radiolab founder and former host, Jad Abumrad. Now, to me, listening to Radiolab is kind of like listening to jazz. You have to train your ear to hear it, Miles Davis talked about the beauty of the space in between the notes. I think Radiolab uses space in that same way. You know, and you just said, it, you know, you wanted to make something beautiful. Tell me, how did your musical background impact the way you approached producing these episodes? Um, well, I love that you just likened it to jazz because uh, very often I would, um, like Robert and I, when he became co-host with me, we would often think about ourselves as a duet in, in a jazz kind of context and also how we were duetting with the sounds. Like it, it felt almost like a, sometimes like a trio in mm -hmm. a way, uh, but a very sort of edited and manufactured one. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think my music background to your question, I went to a very weird music school called Oberlin. Uh, and I, I, I was a composing major at Oberlin and, um, Oh, I didn't know this when I showed up, but Oberlin had been taken over by a sort of, leftover lefties from the avant-garde you know these are people who were doing like really really um like just taking the sort of like the romantic pretty music of the 19th century and just trying to break it into something dissonant and noisy hmm. literally one of the first um piano recitals that i saw was a senior like thesis of he was sawing his piano in half with a chainsaw wow like that was that was his performance um and uh that that so that was the culture at Oberlin, right? It was a very kind of experimental, like let's just tear it all down kind of place. And um, initially, I walked into that and I was like, "What what 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 nightmare have I wandered into? Get me out of here!" <laughs> but then I actually kind of like I kind of grew to it, and I thought, "Oh, this is interesting. Like, there's you know, it's fun to try and play with sounds and experiment." And I never wanted to like hurt people with the sound. I actually wanted to seduce people with the sound, but I loved the sort of experimentation that was happening. So when I got into radio through the side door, uh, one of the first things I would do was just to try and bring some of those weird experimental music concrete uh, instincts into the production of radio, really just because I didn't know any better. You know, I didn't have a long sense of history about what radio was or what's expected. I was just like, oh, this would be neat. Let's try this. Mm. Oh, this is fun. Let's try this little weird noise. And um, and I think in the process, I mean, I think radio, it's a very particular historical window. Um, I mean, these days you hear so many different sounds and, and types of music on podcasts and yeah. on the radio. 
but at the time it really was just all things considered uh and and this new show called this american life that had just launched but there wasn't a whole lot between them and so when i started playing with sound the way that i did i just think it registered to people as something very different i don't know that it would now you know mm. i think it would just be you know part of the scrum mm. Um, so maybe, maybe I got lucky a little bit just, I came up at a specific moment. I think we all got lucky. Um, you know, earlier this year, you retired from radio lab. How does it feel to leave that big part of your life behind? Uh, it feels uh, like sort of getting back to the very first thing I said, it feels like so many things, you know, mm. um, it's like, it's, I feel so proud of, uh, of what I created selfishly, but also like those people that I worked with, uh, Soren Wheeler, who was my right hand for God, for a decade and plus, you know, who's now the sort of lead editorial on the show. Like he and I worked so intimately together and I just, I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of those hosts, Lulu and Latif, uh, who are like my radio children, you know, uh, mm. they, are incredible and they're going to take the show in new places and the entire producing staff uh they're so smart they're just so so smart um i left when at a time when they were doing things that i actually was like that i felt like they had raced past me in a lot of ways mm. so there's pride there's also a little bit of uh you know a little bit of like oh i miss it's like it was so like to live a life inside the production of a show i mean i'm sure you can speak to this it simplifies your life in such as like you get up, got to make the show. You go to bed. Yeah. Get up, got to make the show. Um, and it can be it can be a little bit grueling. It can it can grind people into dust. Um, and part of the reason I left was just I was so tired of working all nighters, right? Mm -hmm. But it also gives your life a kind of structure, and I, I miss that structure a little bit. Um, at the same time, I find it exhilarating to be in this like open ended beginner's mind state. And to get to spend more time with my kids um, mm. who are just like delightful and about to, you know, one of them's about to go to high school and other ones uh, in sixth grade. And it's just like amazing to sort of see them evolve and develop as humans. And it's also exciting to be at a place where I can create new projects. So it's a lot of things at once, Khalil, but um, mostly I'd say I'm just, I'm just happy that the show is living on and flourishing. Mm -hmm. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Nashville's own Jad Abumrad, founder of Radiolab. We'll learn what he's up to now and how his relationship with Dolly Parton helped him see the world differently. Do you have a question for Jad Abumrad? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. My guest this hour is Jad Abumrad, creator and former host of the podcast Radio Lab. He's also the co-producer of the 2019 miniseries Dolly Parton's America, a project that brought the Nashville native back to his roots. Jad Abumrad, thanks again for being here today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me. So, Dolly Parton... She's Nashville royalty. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, it was uh, it's part it's partly why I decided to do a 
to make a 12 part series about her is, is that it, uh, she, uh, she defined my childhood in a way. I mean, without really ever knowing her music too intimately, she was just everywhere. She kind of infuse, fuses the air. And I think it was even more so when I was growing up. So uh, in trying to, in trying to talk to her and create a series about her, that was really about America as seen through her. Mm. Um, it was a lot of that was me wrestling with Nashville and what Nashville meant to me and what the, how I feel about the South and some of these questions. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was the most personal project I ever did, even though it was actually about Dolly. Mm. Uh, but it, uh, yeah, she is a, she is pretty, she's a hard to summarize. Yes. And just pretty much straight up amazing. A yeah. tr true definition of an icon. Well, you know, let's get into your background more. When did your family first move to Music City? Uh, we moved in 1977, 78. Um, uh, and uh, so I was four, I was four or five when we moved. Um, and uh, I do remember, I mean, I the vaguest of memories and my dad sort of confirmed this for me. I, I remember we moved during the uh, hostage crisis and, uh, mm. you know, Nashville's become a very different place and uh, mostly in, in great ways. Um, and, but one of the, one of my first experiences of Nashville was somebody throwing a, a rock through the window because they thought we were somehow part of Like we were, I mean, we were, we we're Lebanese. We're not, we weren't involved in the hostage crisis at all. Yeah. Uh, but I remember that, that, in, I mean, that was those kinds of incidents, uh, few and far between colored my, my, my idea of what Nashville was and what, and my place in it. And I think unfairly to Nashville, because um, as I return to Nashville, I see such a different place, uh, such a much more diverse and interesting and nuanced and wonderful place. Yeah, but at the time in 78, 79, uh, it didn't feel that way to me. Um, it felt like a, we were interlopers. Well, as you were growing up here as a young Lebanese boy, how did you perceive Nashville back then? You know, I perceived Nashville as a, as a, Gosh, I mean, I thought of it as, it's funny, it's an interesting question because uh, I don't know that I perceived it in any one way. Most of what I perceived was how I was perceived, mm. you know? I mean, I was a sort of a shy kid and it took me a long, long time to find my confidence as a human. And so I was always measuring like, how am I seen in this room and how am I seen in that room? And uh, mostly I, I, I saw myself as uh, somehow like, I mean, I remember there were times when I was, uh, you, I, I hope this isn't much of a downer, but I mean, this is just like a, a memory. You know, I remember, uh, all right, uh, fourth graders, raise your hands. Who here goes to, to church? Everyone raised their hands but me. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, I need to go to church. Like, mm -hmm. That's what people do here. And, and uh, you know, I, I remember that just my name tripped people up and it was just a, it all seems so stupid now uh, and it all seems so quaint. Uh, mm. uh, but uh, I do remember like being perceived as just a curiosity um, and seeing Nashville as a place where uh, a very settled white community that loved country music kind of was happy to be what it was and not to necessarily have people coming in. Um, but even as I was there, uh, it changed even as I, as I, you know, it's, I mean, part, what was interesting was that I was also, uh, I spent most of my time 
at Vanderbilt, you know, my after school program was just hanging out in my parents' lab and or at the Blair School of Music. And these were very international spaces. So I could also see, like I could see that there were different Nashvilles. There was the Nashville of the healthcare system, which was you had Vietnamese people, you had Nigerian people, you had uh, uh, Laotian people, all kinds of different people come to work in these labs. And then you had like where I went to school, uh, which was not that, you know, so oh, no, no, it's a, sorry, I'm, I'm spinning myself into a cul-de-sac here, but <laughs> it, it was a very, I don't know that I had a perception of Nashville. I just, I was intimately aware of how I was seen and that there were different pockets where, now, the, where the city was different. Now, did you ever develop, like, did your desire to leave Nashville come from, you know, being aware of how you were seen and not necessarily feeling embraced by the city? Yeah, I think a little bit. I think a little bit for sure. Um, and I don't want to put too, I don't want to underline that too much because, you know, my experience in Nashville is pretty good mm -hmm. uh, by comparison to, uh, but yeah, I I remember when I, left Nashville, I left with a very particular story in my head about the place I was leaving. Um, and I'm not sure it was a fair story or it was the right story, but I remember leaving Nashville and being really happy I'd left and moving to New York. And as unfortunately New Yorkers are wont to do, then looking down on the South, you know, mm -hmm. and I felt like I'd earned the right to do that. Um, and it was funny, the Dolly, the Dolly series was my chance to rewrite that story in my head and to really look at the South with new eyes um, at a time when so many people are doing that. So many people are moving back to the South and reclaiming the stories and finding that the South actually is for them as much as anyone. And so I, uh, I used the, that series as an opportunity to completely reformat the, my ideas of Nashville, my ideas of the South, and also my ideas of my own childhood uh, in that one in that one endeavor. You know, with Dolly Parton's America, that's the project that brought you way back to your roots. And in, in 2020, you gave a TED Talk about you shared this memory that you sort of had this epiphany when visiting Charlie, Dolly's childhood mountain home. Let's take a listen to that. And coming back from that trip on the mountain, a friend of mine gave me a book that gave this whole idea a name. In psychotherapy, there's this idea called the third, which essentially goes like this. Uh, typically, we think of ourselves as these autonomous units. I do something to you, you do something to me. But according to this theory, when two people come together and really commit to seeing each other, in that mutual act of recognition, they actually make something new, a new entity that is their relationship. You can think of Dolly's concerts as sort of a cultural third space. The way she sees all the different parts of her audience, the way they see her, creates the spiritual architecture of that space. And I think now that is my calling. That as a journalist, as a storyteller, as just an American living in a country struggling to hold, that every story I tell has got to find the third. That place, where the things we hold as different resolve themselves into something new. You know, you know, this that that epiphany had to be pretty heavy, transformative, and mm. cathartic for you. You came back to the South, of which you had feelings about. And though, you know, through these conversations with Dolly, through these connections you found, you were able to make connections to your own family and your own place in the yeah. South. How how did the third really change the approach to your work? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's an idea that when I, you know, I sort of just for context, I, I really found it amazing the way that Dolly, both as a human, as a singular human, but also in the space that she creates at her concerts, could could welcome in people who were told in America hate each other, right? Mm. Dolly's concerts are famously a, a, a mashup of all these slices of America. I mean, you'll see uh, you'll see women holding hands, you'll see little girls in um, coat of many colors shirts, you'll see uh, men in trucker hats, you'll see Confederate flags on occasion, you'll see uh, LGBTQ uh, forward people. It's just like there's so many different kinds of people that um that you don't find in the same space and and i was just really curious like how does she do that the third became a way of explaining that that there's a way in which when you insist on who you are and you hold your own differences and yet you simultaneously insist on empathy for the person that you're speaking to mm. uh jessica benjamin uh, who i subsequently interviewed about the third because this is her idea she talks about like when you have agency and empathy in equal measure, what that does is it has two people together, but it creates a space between them and they can use they, like that, that space, they can fill it up with something new they can create something together. And so how it's affected my work is uh, I just think about that as an overarching goal that, um, you know, we journalists tend to like difference. We tend to sort of uh, fetishize difference because uh, difference is tension and tension is what makes stories go you know like mm -hmm. every story begins with a problem you know this is what true crime is right like in, within the first minute someone is shot and mm -hmm. died and then the entire story is like who shot the person yeah so it's like you start with a problem then you fix it which is not the only way to do stories mm -hmm. i think um and so for me it became a way to sort of rectify the inherent bias that we have towards difference and towards um towards fetishizing difference while at the same time not obliterating difference because that also is a kind of crime in my opinion so like what was a way that you could hold difference but also allow for something to happen that could feel an opening up and so i don't know like the short i'm sorry i'm getting a little bit too sort of like abstract but no, I, I, the short I, of it is it I love I'm sorry, it. Go ahead. I just have to okay. ask you this real quick, quick question about Vanderbilt. You know, you are working with Vanderbilt to form this podcast institute set the launch in 2023. What, you know, tell us briefly what it looks like and what your vision is for the next generation of storytellers. Yeah, well, right now I'm trying to figure that out. So I'm, uh, I'm just preparing to teach my first classes. Um, the idea that I have is, uh, you know, there's a, a generation of students uh, that, they're already, they've grown up on podcasts. They know the forms. They know all the like um, the ways of telling stories. What they don't know is just how to do an interview, how to how to make sure something is true. And so, what I'd like to do so is to create classes um, where students can come. They learn the basics, the rudiments of the craft. But we do it in service of creating something that at the end of the class they'll be proud of but also might be useful for society right so um i'm partnering with different parts of vanderbilt to to i mean you know like i'm in conversation with a doctor right now who does uh who runs an or mm. and he he tells me that his patients often have questions 
you know, the, the pre-operative space is a really confusing environment with like lots of weird noises and people are like at telling you about anesthesia and you don't know what any of it means. So I'd like to create a class where I work with students to create stories for people in that space. Wonderful. So that they could, they could hear, uh, they could hit play on a player and then have their questions answered and also be uh, calmed. Um, I got it. I got it. Yeah. We, got it. we have to end here. I wish we had more time. Jad Albumrad is the creator of Radio Lab, co-producer of Dolly Parton's America. And he's come on board at Vanderbilt. Thank you so much for being with us. We have to do this again. We want to thank everybody who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville. is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. I'm Khalil Lake Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Be good to each other.